The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, I I thank you for the work that you have done in me this week as you have preached this text to me. It has been hard, but it has been good. So I thank you for that. Thank you for for fathering me, for, for leading me. Lord Jesus, this week, through your word. It's been hard, but I would want to be no other place. You've shown me some really good things. I thank you for it. You make the simple wise. So I pray, would you please multiply that here and now. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. Would you give my words Um, not only a clarity, but a flavor that would portray you well, Lord Jesus. But I pray that you would do a supernatural work in all of us. I pray that you would, by your Spirit, give me, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We need you. Would you come? Would you work now? Would you let our, would you cause us to glory in you and let that glory within us be to your praise, we pray. Amen. What does a model follower of Jesus look like? I think we all have some idea of what it means to be a disciple, but what are we aiming for? What what is our model? That's the question of the passage before us this morning in Mark 10. Mark 10, starting in verse 32. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Mark 10, starting in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they, the disciples, were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we we are able. 
And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left, it's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The really cool word of God. (laughs) This is the turning point in the book of Mark. From here, Jesus and his disciples will make the arduous journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. The, the road itself is sort of a character in the story because it, it, it's a picture of life, short but hard. The, the ascent from Jerusalem to Jericho was pretty much the same as it would be from here to the top of Mount Olympus. Up and hard. So before they set out, Jesus is going to give them a crucial lesson on the nature of true discipleship. We need this because we are prone to make discipleship about um, more narrow issues. Good issues, but but more narrow issues. Issues like chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, how we behave in marriage. Or about our children, verses 13 through 16. Or about what we do with our possessions, verses 17 through 31. These These are all crucial issues. But this passage goes deeper. What it means to simply follow Jesus. Mark often structures his narrative in the form of a sandwich. Three scenes. The first scene sets up in a very important issue. Then in the second scene, the meat, the sandwich, there's some kind of problem. And then in the third scene, everything is resolved and given greater light and clarity. That's what's happening here. We come to the first scene now and our first point. The first point is simply this, that we follow A humble teacher. We follow a humble teacher. So in this first scene, something something is different with the teacher. He is, as the prophet Isaiah prophesied, setting his face like flint to Jerusalem. The disciples see it. 
The crowd's following behind. They sense it. And the crowds, it says in verse 32, they feel afraid. Something is different about Jesus. It's, it's not that they're anticipating what's going to happen to Jesus when he gets there because they have selective hearing. They don't really believe yet that a king who takes his throne is going to suffer. How does that work? It doesn't compute. So it's not that they're afraid of that. It's that they see something fearfully different in the master and they're afraid. They're afraid and they hesitate and they lag behind. The disciples, on the other hand, are amazed. And perhaps it's not that they're afraid. Perhaps it's that they are astonished and awed that Jesus is finally going to do it. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to open a can on the Romans. He's going to sit on his throne and we're going to sit with him. And it's on. Finally. So they seemingly are, are standing there in fearful but excited awe. So Jesus stops, pulls the disciples aside for a teachable moment. So stop for a second and imagine verse 32, what it must have been like for Jesus in this moment as he leads this band of followers. He is setting his face, the servant of Isaiah, the suffering servant, to go to Jerusalem and to do the greatest thing in all of history, the thing upon which all of history will turn, the fates of all of God's people hang on what he's doing. And behind him, in the back seat, he's got this ragtag bunch of kids who don't understand it, who are fighting with each other over the toys they got and the Happy Meals from McDonald's. Who only hear what they want to hear, who only obey according to whatever they want to hear. But Jesus doesn't get upset. He doesn't tell the kids, if you don't shape up, I'm going to pull this car over. With all their mixed motives, all their unbelief, all their distraction, all their self-interest, Jesus doesn't chastise them. He walks on humbly accepting their following. In a moment, we'll, we'll look more closely at ourselves and, and, and there'll probably be challenge there for us. So it's good for us here at the outset to look at Jesus here and, and remind ourselves to look at Jesus and see Christian. Before we say anything else today, he accepts your following. Let's, let's front load this whole sermon with, with the good news right up front. He accepts your following as is. Period. He accepts it. He humbly accepts your following with all your fears, all your misunderstandings, all your waywardness. He accepts it all. He's humble like this. He is a humble teacher. And how? How, how, do, how can he accept us? How, how can he rightly do this? It's, it's not because our following him as disciples is anywhere near good enough. But 33, verse 33, he has already gone up to Jerusalem. He has already humbly suffered for us in our place. Whatever was worthy of judgment in our following, he was condemned. Whatever is shameful for us, he was mocked and spit upon in our place. Whatever was deserving of punishment by God, he was flogged. So that we could really live, he was killed. 
And so that we could really stand before him and our following could be completely accepted by him. He was raised from the dead. Christian, before we say anything else, he accepts your following. So, we could stop the sermon there. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't stop there. Because he doesn't die for us just to leave us in our place, just to just to cover over what we've done wrong. We also see that we have a humble teacher who, who enters into our suffering with us. His path is hard and, and we have our own cross to carry. Verse 39, if, if we follow him, we will drink from his cup. We will experience his baptism. The, the, those sentences, that, that sentence there, I, I don't think Jesus is referring to James and John's martyrdom But I think instead he's referring to simply the general suffering that we Christians experience along the way, up the big hill to Zion. We experience what he experienced, what he experiences. His path is our path. But he leads us on this path. He leads us along the way. He humbly takes the brunt of it. He drank the full cup of God's wrath completely so that when we experience suffering, we would never experience wrath and he like an old testament sacrificial bull was baptized by fire consumed completely so that we never would be though we experience suffering though we taste of it this explains a little bit of the the odd phrase back in chapter 9 verse 49 when jesus says everyone will be salted with fire We all experience the baptism of fire, the baptism of suffering, but he was consumed completely so that we never would be. He enters our suffering and he goes ahead of it for us. He gets down in our suffering with us, for us. Now, this is crucial because if we would have eyes to see this, because this humble teacher does not leave us where we are. He doesn't die for us just to leave us where we're at, just to cover us in our guilt. He wants to change us. He wants to produce fruit in us, fruit of life. He wants to teach us so that we experience life. But in our selective hearing, we don't always listen. We only like to hear the good stuff. We only like to hear the stuff about Jesus establishing his kingdom and sitting on his throne. So what does Jesus use to teach us? So often he brings us to the point of anxiety. The anxiety of suffering. This is what he uses to make us stop and really listen. And that's what he does here. He reminds them again for the third time in the Gospel of Mark of just what is awaiting them in Jerusalem. Not just him, them. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. It's gut check time. The disciples and the other followers, they're starting to realize, wait a second, what goes for him goes for us. Our fates are are tied directly to his fate. If he succeeds, we succeed. If, If he goes down, we go down. It's gut check time. Have you ever experienced this? Perhaps when you came to Christ, you you loved it and you received so many blessings, a new purity a new clarity in life, a new purpose, 
a new family, new blessings, perhaps even prosperity. But inevitably, Jesus leads us to inflection points, to these these gut check moments when we realize that something has changed. God seems more distant. His face is like flint. What's going on? Or perhaps you've never become a Christian and you were confident. You were confident before you had your life mapped out. Things were hard sometimes, but, but you were on your way. Things were good, but then the bottom dropped out and the path has seemed to be only filled with suffering. What then? Jesus brings us to these points so that we would really listen. So we, we would see something as we will see, something of his kingdom where life is really found. He wants us to hear. He wants us to hear because we have selective hearing and when we have selective hearing, we become unteachable and an unteachable disciple is no disciple at all. Jesus is teaching us and brings us to these points to show us here is where life is found. Real life. He brings us to these points of anxiety to teach us because we are so mixed. So mixed. And this brings us to the the middle of the sandwich, the problem, the second scene, the second point. But we are mixed in motive, prone to save ourselves. That's the second point. We are mixed in motive, prone to save ourselves. So what do you do? What do you do when you feel this, this insecurity? Perhaps the feeling of shame. This feeling of not being okay. This unsettledness of the soul. What do you do? What do you do when you feel this rattle inside your soul? There are three kinds of responses here in the text that encompass, I think, a lot of humanity, a lot of us. The first response, and the one that we are most familiar with, I think, is to freeze up. This is the response of the crowds. Their, their anxiety freezes them in an uncertainty. And we do this. We, we go inert. We get tentative. We believe, but we're stuck by our anxiety. We're not sure whether we really want to proceed down this path. Is this really going to work out okay? Is this really for real? Frozen between faith and fear. The crowds are mixed, just like us. But James and John are anything but frozen. Jesus gave them the nickname, the Sons of Thunder, and they hatch an audacious plan. Verse 35, teacher, it's the same word that most people use in the Gospels when they want something from Jesus. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <clears throat> can, you can hear the sheepishness, the hesitation in their question. Deep down, we kind of know that our request is not quite what you're about. You're humble, and this is not. <laughs> But we're going to ask it anyway. We're going to put you on the spot, Jesus. This, this inner rattle of our souls, it, it compels us. We can't help it. But Jesus patiently, humbly asks, what do you want me to do for you? Of course, they ask to be seated in the places of glory, the left and the right side, the places of honor, right next to the teacher. And they're not all wrong. Because they fully recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. 
They, they fully expect Jesus to go and save his people in Jerusalem and take his throne. They fully believe that he's the Messiah. So they're not all wrong. But uh, they're just very mixed. For them, verse 39, there's no question about ability. It's, it's just about tactics. We are able. We're able. The only question for them is one of optimization to resolve this inner rattle of the soul. It's just a matter of tactics because we're able. And this is so common, so, so common, especially for us gifted, um, self-confident Americans. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of joy, it's right there for the grabbing, right? It's just there for the grabbing. It's just a matter of how. We're able, right? So we pray for these things. We pray for these things, right? And yet so often what we are is revealed by what we ask for and how we ask it. We use the worship of God to advance ourselves, to secure and save ourselves, to find life. James and John are essentially using Jesus. They're using the worship, the following, the discipleship of their Savior to be secure, to be okay in glory. Half right, really half wrong, mixed, like us. And there's one problem. We're not very good at saving ourselves. Verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. We are not able. The evidence of this when we try to advance ourselves to, to secure life for ourselves by our own power is that it always leaves wreckage. It always leaves wreckage behind, especially relational wreckage with other people. The evidence of this um, we can see in the third group here. They are the disgusted and the disillusioned. First there was the fearful frozen, the audacious advancers, and now there's the disgusted disillusioned. Where do you think Mark got this story from for his gospel? Well, he got it from Peter, of course. Peter, James, and John, they were the inner three with Jesus. And, P and James and John cut him out in their plan. I'm sure he felt betrayed. You ever felt this way? Someone advancing, leaving you behind. And of course, verse 40, 41, the other nine, they're no happier. They're indignant and disappointed. And again, it's probably mixed here, probably because on the one hand, they probably did want the seats of glory too for themselves. But on the other hand, they probably also felt like James and John's advancement, like it was a zero-sum game that, that that would get in the way of their own closeness, their own intimacy with Jesus. So in, in another sense, they're rightfully upset. What are you guys doing? We, we want Jesus too. We want to be close to him too. They're mixed. Like us. Like us. So, of these three groups, where do you find yourself? What's, what's your style of self-salvation? What does it look like for you? Do you self-protectively freeze up? Or do you do the opposite and audaciously advance yourself? Or do you stew somewhere in the middle, disappointed, disillusioned, disaffected? 
whichever group you find yourself in, Jesus calls us all together. Verse 42, as if in a a group huddle. I got the same message for all of y'all. And the sense of verses 42 through 45 is not, it's, it's not so much from the original language, it's not so much a command from Jesus to be serving, to be giving, but it is more a statement of fact. This is what my kingdom is all about. My kingdom, the, the, the ethos, the, the, the central character, the, the soul of my kingdom, it's not about advancing yourself to save yourself, but it's also not about fear, and it's not about being, being, being resentful and disillusioned and disappointed either. The, the, the central focus of my kingdom is gaining life by giving, by serving, by giving your life away. That's my kingdom. That's the, that's the boundary of my kingdom. And right now, you are standing outside that line. It's a statement of fact. You're standing outside the boundary, the boundary of my kingdom, the boundary of kingdom discipleship, the boundary of life. I, I, I know it's hard to understand. You, you sense this from Jesus. I, I, he's a humble teacher. I, I know this is hard for you to understand that, that real life comes to us not by force, not by power, not by control, but by giving up our lives that those who find their lives find them by giving their lives away. I, I know that's like the most counterintuitive thing ever said, and yet it is true. It's true. But you can't see it because you are privileging only what you can see with your eyes. You can't see my kingdom because you are relying only on what you can see with your eyes. So I ask you, see You need to see by faith. Not with your eyes, but by faith. By believing my words. But but in order to see, again, a counterintuitive, in order to see, you need to step back over this line. You actually can't see the kingdom from over there. You need to come back inside the boundaries of my kingdom, inside the boundaries of kingdom discipleship, and then you will see then you will be able to see. He's saying that this is why you're so mixed. This is why we are so mixed. This is why we spend so much time in our lives vacillating and wavering and failing in this mixture because we are privileging, privileging only what we can see with our eyes, not the very words of Jesus. So our great need is to cross that line. So Jesus says, remember, remember folks, I already accept your following. Don't doubt that. You're my people. You're my people. But, but, but come back over because I want to give you life. I know it's scary. I, I know it's scary to let go of whatever you're holding on to for life. Maybe it's the, actually that screen in your pocket that, that feels like your very best friend, the, the, the friend that you can always go to when you're stressed out or afraid or in need of a diversion or distraction. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's that guy or that girl. 
I know, I know, I know it's scary to let go of that seeking of life there. But he says, come over. Come over here and then you will see. And you will see. You know, better yet, let me show you, Jesus says. <laughs> let me show you. And they leave Jericho. And as they left, I, I suspect that those last few words of verse 45 would have been, they, they would have been bugging the disciples. Ransom. We were disciples. We've been with you for three years, Jesus. We've been to all your Bible studies. We, we're, like, we're like in with you, right? Ransom? I mean, ransom means like someone who's in jail. Someone who has no hope of getting out unless someone from the outside comes and frees them. Ransom? Right? Ransom's like for people who are like prisoners of war who have been captured and have absolutely no hope. They're completely dependent on someone from the outside coming in and paying an exorbitant price to free them. Ransom? Us? Ransom? And then Jesus, who just a short while before, had been fearfully, supernaturally determined to go to Jerusalem, stops for one man. Crowds all around. The disciples all around him and the crowds all around. And he stops. And amongst all the hubbub, what he hears and what he sees is one voice of a man behind the crowds, excluded by the crowds, told to shut up. And even over the voices of, of this man being told to shut up, he hears him. He hears his cry. This brings us to the third point, the third scene. Jesus' disciples humbly follow him, bound by love for life in his presence. Jesus' disciples humbly follow him, bound by love for life in his presence. This, this world has a way of foisting identities on us that are dehumanizing. Mark records Bartimaeus' earthly identity. He was blind Bartimaeus, the beggar. Jesus would have a different name for him. My model disciple. My model disciple. I wonder if Jesus turned and gave a sideways glance to James and John when he asked Bartimaeus the exact same question that he asked them. What do you want me to do for you? As if to say, guys, watch and learn. What does real discipleship look like, look like first? It means that those who follow Jesus know that they are blind, that they need a ransom, that they sit in darkness, that they have no hope unless someone more powerful comes and delivers them, 
They, they feel that shame, that inadequacy of, of sitting in prison, unable to free themselves, that inner rattle of the soul. But instead of trying to save themselves, they give up and they cry out. They cry out. Jesus is saying to James and John, guys, you are a lot worse off than you think. You don't need new tactics. You need a redeemer. You, my disciples, my followers, need a redeemer every day. You don't need better books. You don't need, uh, you don't need better programs. You need a savior, my disciples. God gave Bartimaeus the suffering of blindness so that he could really see better than anyone else there, better than anyone else here. Bartimaeus could see. He could see that Jesus is like that other great Nazarite, Samson, strong and powerful. But unlike that other Nazarite, he's wise. Powerful and wise. Jesus gave him blindness so that Bartimaeus could see that this Jesus is the son of David. The son of David, the king of Israel. The one with all authority over all. Powerful and all authority. Powerful and able. He is God. That's what Bartimaeus sees. That he is God and if he is this God, if he is this God, he is a generous God. He is a giving God. He is a serving God. So what does he do? That word rabbi in verse 51, it is different than the word teacher that James and John used. James and John maybe were flattering Jesus. But this word, it's a rare word. It's almost always used for God and not for men in ancient literature, not just the Bible. Bartimaeus isn't using Jesus for what he wants. He's worshiping. He's worshiping Jesus by making Jesus the source, the solution to his deepest needs. He's worshiping. So Bartimaeus simply asks for his sight. But it was not just sight that he was longing for. I think Bartimaeus wants to be whole. Bartimaeus wants to be human. He wants to be human. Really live. He wants to be whole. And he knows that this man, this God-man, he is the one. He is the human being. In him is found life. He is the one who will one day go and be raised from the dead three days later. In this one is life. I will go to him. I will cry out to this one. He's the source of life, the embodiment of life. The world told Bartimaeus to shut up, to sit down, that he has no standing here. But Jesus Jesus calls Bartimaeus and he is welcomed, he is accepted before he had done anything at all for Jesus. 
in Jesus, Bartimaeus got a new dignity, a new identity as one who is loved by the king. And as one who has been given access to life, access to being human, to being whole, to being sane, life in this man, in this second Adam, this perfect one, Jesus, he got it. He got it. He got it. He was reborn. The, the, the word here where Jesus says, go your way, your faith has made you well. The, the verb, the underlying verb in the, in the original language there is save. Your faith has saved you. Double meaning. He was made well and he was made well by the love of Christ for him. He was reborn. All by simple faith. He didn't just believe the facts about Jesus. He trusted them and cried out. And the effect, the effect is self-forgetting humility. We talked about this in Sunday school today, but real humility is not, of course, thinking too highly of ourselves, but it's also not thinking too lowly of ourselves either. It's thinking of ourselves less. And at the voice of Jesus, Bartimaeus forgets himself, runs up, forgets his clothes, <laughs> shouts over the shouting of others, telling him to shut up. He forgets himself in the love of Christ. That's biblical humility. And this, this is what transforms us. This is what the, the generous, giving love of God does to us. It frees us to forget ourselves and then to give and serve to love. First, to love God and then to love the world around us, but to love, to give, to give our lives away. It's this love that, that binds us to Christ. Jesus tells him, go your way. Go your way, Bartimaeus. There's no strings attached to this. You don't, have to, you don't have to come to my church. Go your way. You're free. Bartimaeus doesn't have to think about it at all. Where else can I go for life? Where else can I go for life but putting my nose between your shoulder blades? Where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. I'm going to follow you. <laughs> Go my own way. My own way is your way. They're one. They're one and the same. The, the, the amazing thing about the love of Christ to us is that it transforms our sufferings. It, it transforms our sufferings. Je, Jesus didn't just come to comfort us in our sufferings. He came to make our sufferings like his. Uh, experiences, seasons of giving, of serving this God who loves us so. He transforms our, our, our sufferings into, into moments and into seasons of, of, of transforming grace to us.
the transformation of Bartimaeus, the suffering was complete. He called Bartimaeus to make Bartimaeus' suffering like his, an act of giving, an act of service, an act of love to this God and to the world. All because he cried out to him. All because he believed. All because he trusted. So will you cry out to him? How, how is it that when we find ourselves so mixed, we find ourselves on the outside of that line, what do we do then? First, we believe, we, we trust what Jesus says about us. We trust that our service is already, already accepted by him. We believe the gospel about ourselves. But then we cry out, we cry out and say, Lord, give me sight. Would you give me sight to see that the only source of joy and life in this universe is found in you, in following you. Will you show me that? Will you show me that, that you are life, not this, not this, not this, that I am prone to, to be distracted towards and, and lured towards? Will you show me this? Bartimaeus is the model disciple for one and only one reason, that he saw that Jesus is the source of joy. That is why he's the model disciple. Not because of what he knew. The facts that he knew here are really quite simple. He's the model disciple because of what he could see, that Jesus is the source of all joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because if you would, then in that belief, you have all you need to follow Christ from here in Jericho to Zion. Through all the successes that lay before you, brother or sister, and all the sufferings, you have all you need in that simple faith. So will you cry out with me to, that he would give you this faith, that he would open your eyes even more, cause you to see it, cause you to believe it and trust it, and move back across this line into, the, into what he would say is true kingdom discipleship. Will you cry out to him? Let's pray. Father, on behalf of all of us here now, I, I cry out to you. We have, all of us, similarities in our mixedness. We have, we have a lot of differences too. So I pray for all of us, would you give us sight, sight to see that in all of it, you are the source. You are our source of life of a real identity, of, of really being human, of being whole again. You are our source of life. You are our source of joy. Grant by your spirit for us to see this, to follow you, trusting you, to bring us to the end when we will experience it in full.
Look forward to that day in Zion. There will be no need for light because you, Lord Jesus, will be the center of it. Our light and our life. Bring that day soon and bring us to that day. And I ask that because you've promised to do it. You are strong and you are king. You are able. You will do it. To the praise of your name. So it's to the praise of your name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.